You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I want you to turn to the book of Judges once again to chapter 2. And we've moved on. We're in another chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. On your way there, I've got a picture. I think a new one. Weston, thank you. I love it when I get pictures from, from others and even older ones. I just appreciate this. This is one last week we were in, in the tail end of Judges 22 through uh, 1. Judges 1, 22 through 36. And uh, the house of Joseph had gone up to Bethel. Remember that one guy that came out and they said, hey, give us the way into the city. We'll let you go. Weston captured it. Um, he says up here, I don't know if I can read it, go for your name, for you honored our Lord, for you have honored our Lord. So here goes that family while the rest of the city's going down. Anyway, thank you, Weston. Appreciate that. Hopefully you've gotten to Judges chapter 2 by now. Let's read God's Word, starting verse 1, and we'll go 1 through, one through 5 this morning. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray together once again. Lord, we just pray as we, as we read your word. Maybe we're not familiar with Gilgal and Bochim. We are familiar with your covenant and you bringing a people out of Egypt and saving a people. And we're familiar with you saving us by your son Jesus and that blood that washes away our sin. And yet, Lord, we can become familiar and depart quickly knowing our own hearts. Lord, we thank You for the ways that You bring us back through consequence to Yourself again. May You bring us back today. May this time in Your Word bring us back to the feet of our Lord to lift our hands, as it were, again and say, we worship You. Forgive us for where we have turned aside. So, Lord, guide our time by Your Spirit and encourage us, convict us. Again, we would pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. He came up to me and said, what are you doing? The context, I was in our minivan in Clearwater, Kansas on a snowy night in the church parking lot doing donuts with my own kids and my wife and the pastor at the time. His kids were in our car too. 
And we were in our minivan. If you take our minivan and you put it in reverse, you can do pretty good donuts in the church parking lot. And it's Kansas. It doesn't snow all the time. I was having a great time until I stopped on one of the spins. And lo and behold, in the grocery store parking lot across the street was our policeman. I was like, and he came and drove over, looked, rolled down the window. What are you doing? You know, and, and those questions aren't good, right? He knows what we're doing. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm about to be told why that's such a bad idea. And I, I don't think I've done it since, but I can't be certain on that. Apparently, minivans are top-heavy. He was wise to tell me, don't, you know, you're, you're risking stuff, whatever, doing that. So it was good. But it's a question, isn't it? What are you doing? Parents, you, kids, you hear this from your parents. What are you doing? Or parents, you say this to your kids. What are you doing? In some ways, we know what's going on. But it's a question, and I think it's a question to call to account. It's not just a question that, it's not like the policeman was saying, what are you, help me, you know, he's just, it's that, what are you doing, what you're doing is bad. God's doing the same thing today in the text. What is this you, Israel, have done? And he's asking it at this place called Bokim. We'll look at that. He's saying to them, and they're rolling down the window, if you will, and he's saying, what are you doing? Last week, we saw the, the seeds of this issue going on as um, Joseph had the victory at Bethel, kind of a highlight, and then from there, they, did not, they failed to drive out these inhabitants, they failed to drive out these, they failed to drive, they let them, they became forced labor, and on and on it went last week. Instead of fully destroying their enemies, they made them into forced labor. And we looked at these kind of, in, in essence, inviting these guests of sin in by not putting them to the sword. And so now, chapter 2, the Father has come, if it were, to his, to his kids, and He's come to call them to account. And we find their response, and it's one of weeping. The first part of verse 1 sets the stage for what's going to follow, where it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. I just want to think about this a little bit. Who is this angel of the Lord? I'm persuaded, and I think that you could have different views here. I'm persuaded the angel of the Lord here is none other than God himself. Uh, theologians would call it a, a theophany, this, this visible manifestation of God. The ESV calls calls this one an angel, so that's where we might go, well, how's that the Lord? But it can also mean messenger, so messenger of the Lord. Um, the reason I think this way, just all the personal language here, it's, the angel's not saying this is a message from the Lord. The Lord says this. He just says, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into the land. I swore to you. I'm going to never break my comp. There's this personal nature, which makes me think this is God himself. There's also, I, th I think, a connection somehow with this reference to Gilgal. You may not remember that name, but there, back when we were looking at Joshua, a couple of years ago, I guess now, we're looking at Gilgal. There, the, the people of Israel ha uh, had been circumcised, and near Gilgal, Jericho, somewhere in that area, and that's where the commander of the army of the Lord had met Joshua. And at the time we looked at that, I also said, I, I think we're seeing the real presence of God before Joshua. Joshua bows before this commander, 
And normally if you bow before, the, if it's not God, that, that one is going to say, don't bow before me, I'm not God. That doesn't happen there. And we read that Joshua was standing on holy ground. And so I think there's a connection from Gilgal, that area now to Bochim. And I think that's what's going on. Was, was this Jesus kind of pre-incarnate or how is God present there? I, I don't know all those answers. I don't understand it all. I can't give a firm answer, but, but I believe it's none other than the Lord Himself speaking to His people. We're going to see this angel of the Lord come again in Judges as we look through. So I'll have more chance to look at that a little bit. But again, like what I said, what's interesting is this, this uh, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, we know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So, He's not just one place. So what's this coming from Gilgal to Bochim? The, the literal Hebrew reads here, the Lord went up from the Gilgal to the Bochim. Just an interesting way of putting it. It puts the, the article in there, the. Normally, towns don't have that. They're just assumed it's, it's a proper name. Here, it's from the Gilgal to the Bochim. So what's significant about this? I believe the author is prefacing the confrontation going on with these words from Gilgal to Bochim. Just think about the settings here. You, again, you may not remember Gilgal, but Israel had just crossed that Jordan River into the Promised Land. This was the place of rolling back, place of circumcision for all of that generation that grew up after that generation had died out in the wilderness for unbelief, really, for not obeying the voice of the Lord. Now a new generation is circumcised, consecrated. It's a sign of the covenant between God and His people at Gilgal. It goes back to even the time of Abraham. So again, that previous generation, they've perished. Now there's a new one. And so Gilgal is this place of consecration, place of belief, there, from there, they would, going into the promised land, for the most part, trust and obey the God of their salvation as they went into that land. So it's a, it's a good, Gilgal is a good point in the history. But then connect it. Now they're at Bochim. We don't know what Bochim means, but it, you know, our text helps us in the Bible. Bochim means, I've got in the ESV a little footnote, means weepers. It's a place of weeping. So you've got Gilgal, place of future hope, looking good. We're circumcised. We're going in the land. We've got the Lord, commander of the army, all these things. And now there's this place of weeping and a place of Israel being called to account by the same God. And he's about to call them out for, for failing to drive out the inhabitants of the land. As he does, they're once again reminded of what they have so quickly forgotten. Their God has been faithful to His promises. He's been faithful to His Word and to His covenant. Look at, um, oh, I guess, the second part of verse 1. So the, I'll just read the whole verse. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now here's what God says to them, the, kind of the first part of it. And He said... I brought you up from Egypt. And if we were going to put in the eye, I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You see how often the word, the pronoun I is magnified in this place. Four, four verbals, maybe five if you count them 
however you count them, but there's this, I brought you from Egypt. I brought you into the land. I swore to give it to you. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So the Lord's not only delivered them from slavery of Egypt, and the harshness there, He's led them into the promised land. Over and over, the Lord had won the victory. The covenant stood firm from Abraham, so if you think maybe 2000 B.C., all the way to Joshua, maybe some 550 years later, that covenant, the land was still going. God was faithful all the way to where we're at. Really, all this, it's, it's to say, I, the Lord, I've kept my covenant. I've not failed you one bit, my people. And then God reminds them of His instruction. So, he says in, the, in the, basically the last part of verse 1, I will never break my covenant with you. And now verse 2, what had they done? Look at verse 2. And you, this is what he had said, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. God had been clear to them of what they were to do. This actually is just a reiteration of there might be other places. Deuteronomy 7, verse 2. Here's what the Lord had commanded through Moses. He said this. Listen for the similarity. This is from Deuteronomy 7, 2. And when the Lord your God gives them, that's these seven nations of this land, the current promised land, when He gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And he goes on to say, in Deuteronomy, you shall break down their altars. But then look at the second part of verse 2. That's what he had already told them. The instruction was there. Look at the second part. But you have not obeyed my voice. And there's the question, what is this you have done? A voice had spoken to Israel, God's voice, And Israel had once again not listened to the voice. They disobeyed the clear instruction of their God. I I can't imagine anyone in Israel, I mean maybe an infant, but who had not heard the accounts orally passed down of just what God required in the promised land. You know, this passing down. We know what's required. I don't think this would be like, oh, we forgot that. I think they'd know that. But how many times in the Scripture do we find God's creatures rebelling once again against the voice of the Lord? And God's voice is clear. We looked at Psalm 19 this week in prayer meeting. The heavens declare His glory. The earth, every creation is speaking loudly. The colds, the highs, the sun is shining today. All these things declare there is a God, there is a Creator. And then His Word declares who He is. Mankind is without excuse. So we cannot say when we meet the Lord, we cannot say, I had never never heard this. And so God asked this penetrating question to Israel, what is this you have done? It's interesting. Think back. I mean, the questions, this is not the first time God's asked somebody a question. Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, there were questions. God asked a series of questions. First to Adam, where are you? Did God know where he was? Yes. Where are you? 
And then when Adam says he was naked, God says, who told you you were naked? There's questions. And then, then after Adam, he claimed, well, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat. And the Lord says to the woman, what is this that you have done? Was God really wondering here? I, th- I think he's calling sin to account. In fact, we see this same questioning of Cain. After Cain killed his innocent brother Abel, God says to Cain, what have you done? And so Israel, here in the book of Judges, is being called to account. God's expressing disappointment, bewilderment, amazement. People, I brought you out, I made a covenant with you, and then you turn and you fail to listen to my voice. And they had turned from their God. And they reasoned that a little bit of forced labor with some Canaanites, I mean, we're, we're close, aren't we? Aren't they in forced labor? It's close enough. It's just a little bit of disobedience. Maybe not fully, but it's close. And they didn't realize the consequences. So in wake of sin, questions abound. Questions here, I think, that penetrate the heart to call to account. I want us to consider our lives, even as we just stop just a minute, consider your life before the Lord today. What have you done? What are you doing? Is there some remaining sin in your life today? Question to you. Well, verse 3, as we move on, Israel realizes once again there are consequences for sin. I had to look it up. It's Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I propose every act of disobedience to the voice of the Lord carries with it just and right consequences. Every sin has consequences. We might not we may try to reason them out or Well, that didn't really affect anything. I guess it's okay. They all have consequences. Look at verse 3 here. Uh, Here's their consequence. So God says to them, So now I say, I will not drive them out. Who's them? The nations. Drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Israel was to live among their consequences for disobedience. God would not. I mean, this is the God who had driven them out. God says, I'm not going to drive them out. There's going to be thorns, which also takes us back to Adam, doesn't it? There's going to be thorns. thorns. There's going to be snares to your worship. In essence, again, Israel's going to live within the consequences of their sinful failures. So I believe it carries consequence. Perhaps in an age of God is love, which He is, and God is with us, you know, we, we want to bank on those promises. He is loving towards us. He is with us. But perhaps we can look at, maybe look at sin's consequences, maybe even here or in other places and think, well, that's, that's kind of ungracious of the Lord, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't seem very loving if he, if he doesn't act on their behalf. He's not going to drive them out. I mean, 
they're going to be weeping here, right? Why is the Lord doing that? He's going to call, he's going to help drive them out when they call out to him, but he allows them to experience the consequences of sin. This is interesting. I have not read the whole book. Maybe some of you have. There's a book by Dave Harvey and Paul Gilbert um, have called Letting Go. It's called Rugged Love for Wayward Souls. They say something in here that's interesting. I'm just I'm pulling it out because I think it, it fits with where we're at. Thinking about, well, here's Israel. And God has called them out. You did not obey my voice. Therefore, this will not, I, you will not drive out the people that are here. Here's what they say. They say true love draws lines. It defines what is good and what is evil. And when lines are chronically crossed or habitually ignored, true love enforces consequences. These steps, defining right from wrong and good from evil and clarifying the consequences of behavior, are prerequisites for a person to experience the transformative effect of rugged love. That's their calling this type of love a rugged love. They go on to say, the rules and consequences themselves do not have the power to change a person. But unless they are clear and felt, the power of grace cannot do its work. They go on to say, fools in their rebellion will exploit mercy shown to them if it's unaccompanied by cost or consequence. We must never assume that mercy is without cost. The gospel reminds us that God's mercy towards sinners was not free. It was a cost borne by Christ. So I would submit here that rather than thinking, well, God's abandoning them and not loving them, He, in fact, is loving Israel at this point by giving a consequence. And we see other consequences throughout this nation. Actions have consequences. And through those consequences, we learn things. I mean, the, what's that example? You know, the, the, the hot pan on the stove. You learn that that thing is hot by touching it. And most of us, maybe not Esther yet or other younger ones, we've learned. We've touched it. And we went, yeah, it's hot. And we backed away and we learned something. And I don't think we're looking at our hand going, what a stupid hand. Why does it feel heat like that? We're going, thank you because it protected me from that. God in His love, I think, is doing a gracious work in consequences even. It's protective. It's instructive. The book of Hebrews says this, the Lord disciplines the one He loves. It goes on to say in Hebrews, He disciplines us for our good. Consequences are painful. I would rather not have them. But may we see those too as God's grace to us to train us and lead us and ultimately really lead us back once again to the Savior. Look lastly at the response of the Israelites after God has shared all this in verses 4 and 5. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, 
and they sacrifice there to the Lord. And by the way, I don't know where Bochim is. Maybe it was by Shiloh, maybe by Bethel. Not sure where it is. It's not listed here. But it was listed as this place of weeping. The voice of the Lord had spoken, and in its wake, people weep. Matthew Henry comments here. He says, this was good, this weeping. He says, this was good. And a sign that the word they heard made an impression upon them. It is a wonder sinners can ever read their Bible with dry eyes. It goes on to say, but this was not enough. They wept, but we do not find that they reformed that they went home and destroyed all the remains of idolatry and idolaters among them. Many are melted under the Word that harden again before they are cast into a new mold. You ever find that? I mean, maybe you're molded even just as I'm speaking here or during a morning here and you're molded and you're weeping and you get home and, and that mold doesn't have... To, and, and there you are again, that same sort of sin. We'll address that, hopefully. The question here for Israel, would their weeping, would this sacrifice truly lead to true change? And I want to think it did for the moment. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm careful to say that was fake. You know, they weren't really weep. I, I think they were, and maybe even perhaps for this generation, but I mean, just... Just look down at your text at verse 11. Whatever it was, it didn't, it didn't last long. I don't know if this is the same group here, same generation or different. I want to think it's a, it's a next generation as, as the, what we'll look at next week, the 6 through 10 shows us. But it says in verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. Once again, they turn aside to the Lord. Bochim, place of weeping. I want to close just with two thoughts on this section here. One is that I believe weeping for our sin is good. I want to commend what we see here. Weeping, when you see your sin and grieve over it, that is a good thing. Don't get all tied up in how many tears I have or how long I'm crying or any of that. I just think when we see our sin... We see what we've done. It is good to weep over it. And maybe it's been a while for you to have quietly come before the Lord and wept for your sin. Or even realize there's, there's consequence for it. Maybe there's sins in your mind. Well, it's just in my mind. It's not affecting anybody else. What are the consequences for my anger or my laziness or other thoughts, maybe murderous, hateful thoughts in my head that don't even just, you don't see it up here? What are the consequences of that? Today, we need to take a fresh look at the consequences of our sin. Even sins just, Lord, how is this affecting? I think, see the reality of our sin in our lives and the effect it has, even what we think is, is hidden. We want to weep for our sin. That's good. And then 
And so I think that's good. And then weeping as we realize who we have turned against is best. It is good to weep for our sin and say, whoa, look at these consequences. And then I think it's another, it's to take that and say, oh Lord, I've disobeyed your voice. May we be like David who realized Psalm 51. He realized his, cons- his sin was really against the Lord. Remember him saying, against you, you only have I sinned. We've sinned against the one who we sing about that purchased us with his blood. We've sinned against the one. We've got his word, all of his word. We've come to this word for comfort. How many times to, to Psalms and other places to be comforted? And then on our own, we turn from him and not wholeheartedly obeying it. But I want to encourage you, instead of this weeping making us run away from God, I think that's what the enemy would have. Oh yeah, I've disobeyed the Lord. To run away, instead run back to God again. Where, where did Paul run when he had his thorn in the flesh? Is that a thorn in the... I don't know. Where did he run? He ran back to God's grace. To the sufficient grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood is the new covenant the new one in him jesus perfectly obeyed the voice of the lord and he fully took on the consequences of our sin on the cross that's what jesus did so i'd encourage you today sometime to weep i mean i'm not asking for fake tears more take take five minutes when's the last time you took just five minutes to say, I'm just going to be quiet in, in a, I don't know if you've got to lock the bathroom door, wherever you've got to get to, to just be alone and say, Lord, what have I done? Is, is there any sin going on in here that I, I need to know of that I've brushed away or I've, I've just thought, well, that's just kind of, it's, it's not really affecting anybody. Just get quiet with the Lord and then take that corrupt heart and run to the cross. Run to the incorruptible King Jesus, our perfect Savior, whose righteousness covers our sins that we may keep running and going and following by His sufficient grace. Let's pray. Lord, Your grace is sufficient for our need. It is bigger than we know. There is more sin going on than we know. And so we pray to our Savior Jesus. We thank You for the forgiveness that You would take on the curse for us, our sins, the iniquities laid on You on the cross that we might be made righteous and forgiven and have life with You to enjoy You forever. Lord, move within this body. I pray, Lord, that each person, Lord, that takes the time to just evaluate, Lord, are there any hidden sins going on? Any what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins? Is there anything going on? Lord, that You would just transform us as a body of Christ here 
that You would pull out of us, maybe, maybe even from our spouses or from what we see or a preacher on the radio or a song, pull out of us that sin and show it to us, Lord, that we may not turn aside. May we see the consequences, but Lord, may Satan not get a foothold and keep us from running back to You again, Jesus. So protect this flock as they look at their own lives. Protect us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our shepherd, whose voice we hear because of your great grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.